Welcome to Unpacking Autism with Rena Anand, the podcast where stories are shared, hearts are touched, and we grow together in empowerment to help our autistic children thrive. Hi everyone, thank you for joining today's podcast where I will be speaking to the amazing Dr. Rachel Taylor. Dr. Rachel is a cognitive neuroscientist who developed the first theory of well-being for people with autism. She is extremely passionate about supporting everyone to live their best lives and improve their daily performance. And she does this through her website, content, podcasts, speaking engagements, and so much more. And she's on a special mission to inform everyone about how where people live within themselves informs their destiny. She's a northerner living in the south of the UK, has three children, two cats, and in her words, not mine, one extremely dry sense of humor. You can find Dr. Rachel on www.unbroken.me and on the Unbroken podcast, links for which are on the website. I first came across Dr. Rachel at one of my previous places of work, and she came to speak around the importance of well-being, but at a much deeper level than I had ever previously engaged with, like talking about the brain and the reaction to emotion and how it manifests in us physically. And as an autism parent, I was really struggling with self-care and I, I was in very much self-sacrifice mode. It was all about Evie. I had neglected my other relationships and I thought that this was the best way to serve him by just putting all my energy into him. And listening to Dr. Rachel, I'm really taking on board some of the very practical well-being tips, which were digestible and things I could incorporate into a day that I didn't feel had any pockets of time, meant that that was part of my reflective journey on how important it was that I looked after myself and that that's not indulgent or just a, a nice thing to have, but actually really necessary for me to be the parent I wanted to be for Evie and be able to give to all my relationships in the way I wanted to, but also be full myself. And so I'm really, really thrilled that Dr. Rachel is going to come and talk about her experience, her passion for autism and neuroscience, the amazing work that she does. And, you know, bearing in mind, lots of people listening will be parents who have autistic children. I hope that towards the end, Rachel's also going to share some amazing, really practical tips that maybe we could try to incorporate into our life to just help us um, keep ourselves topped up. So I keep calling you Dr. Rachel because that's how I see you. I know you've um, so. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm absolutely delighted that you've made time and very grateful to have you here. Hi. Hi. And thank you so much for inviting me on. I was like over the moon when you did. I was like, oh, this is so exciting because I know you are on a real mission yourself. So yeah, it's always exciting to be part of somebody's mission. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. So let's start with like your why. What is it? What is it about autism and why are you so passionate, you know, about this area in particular? Um, I, I think the, the why is, it, you know, I've always been a little bit different myself. <laughs> you know, I've always been on the fringe of society. And I, I like to say, you know, the bell-shaped curve, like the majority, of the, I'm not even an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like way off somewhere else. And it took me 
you know, like I'm 44 years old. It's took me probably the best part of 42 of those to think that's okay. And, you know, so I've always known what it's like to not quite fit in, you know, not quite be as everybody else. And then when I was actually commencing my studies for my original PhD, which meant to be around the emotion of joy, I happened to sit in on a, on a lecture, which basically said that people with autism couldn't be happy. <laughs> and I was oh. like, what? <laughs> you know, I was just like, this was something completely different and something that I'd never heard before. And I was like, sure, surely, surely that's not quite right. And my original plan was to do a bit of a side hustle alongside my PhD and, and just think, is this true? And then the more I, I spoke to people, the more I delved into it, I thought, this is a story that's never been told. This is something that's never been looked at. You know, people, researchers have looked at the minutiae of brain function or the minutiae of gut biome, you know, people with autism. But nobody had ever actually looked at sort of the well-being and happiness. And, you know, this might, some of your listeners might know this, but for those who don't, it's, it's so shocking, is that even in the 21st century, people with autism tend to die between 15 and 20 years before people who are neurotypical. And I don't think that's okay. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, can be combined with, you know, basically their quality of life and well-being. So my why was I completely shifted my PhD studies. <laughs> it's like, right, I know joy is important, but we'll put that to one side and, and we'll, we'll do something that hasn't been done at all before ever and I sort of moved into a whole world of, of, of people who had never been listened to mm. had never really felt accepted who feel like that just survival is good enough and who feel like you know they're apologetic for their differences they're aware of who so so acutely aware of who they are and what that means in terms of society and you know basically limit themselves uh, you know I had one person who was part of my research who he um went salsa dancing once a week and that was his human contact because he knew that everybody had to dance with everybody else in that class and I, I you know often during the pandemic when we were all forced into inhumane isolation I think about people like him mm. where that was their only human contact because they limit themselves so much because they are so acutely aware that they're different so you know I, I am aware that I might have got my soapbox but I, I this is why I am so you know passionate about it because no one person should feel that they have to contrive human contact and that's the only way that they can do it we should be Mm. accepting of difference and understanding and actually thinking that difference is good why should I be bothered if someone has to self-stimulate in front of me mm -hmm. or someone has a meltdown because actually their senses are over why does that why does that matter to me why am I not okay sitting at the side of someone in pain and this is you know it, it's a huge thing I always tell people you know that I might do other stuff in sort of human performance well-being and growth but my passion project is always going to be neurodiversity, people with autism. And, and, I'm, and that's never going to change because I'm getting quite emotional talking about it. It touched me mm. right there when I was doing the read. It, it changed me fundamentally as a person. Yeah. And um, whenever I talk about it, I can see that people 
start thinking about it differently and if I can just make someone think about it a little bit more differently then I think that something can happen from that so yeah that's that's my why Rena. (laughs) I think it's really interesting actually because I whenever ever used to have a meltdown um in the early days when I still was figuring out what is what is autism like why is is, is this autism? Is it just him acting out? What's going on? You know, and oh, people are watching. People felt visibly uncomfortable and f- were really judgmental. You know, if I'm out in public, actually, even in some of my wider family, when they see, so what is it about that behavior that makes people feel like that? So uncomfortable in, in, in their own skin? Well, I think some of it is that, you know, generally people want to fix things, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like you see somebody in pain, you see somebody upset. It's like, I want to make them feel better. <laughs> you know, I want to, I want to do something, you know, and I'm being probably quite kind in thinking that most people want it, want to do that. You know, maybe they don't, but I, I like to, you know, when you see somebody in that, and it's like, I don't understand how to fix it. How do I make it stop? And people can get quite uncomfortable with that. You know, often, you know, this is just not for autism. This is for everybody, you know, every human being. You know, when I say to people, the greatest gift you can give someone is when they are feeling, you know, so distressed, when they are feeling in such pain, sit next to them and acknowledge it and just say, I see it. I don't need to fix you. I'm just going to I'm just going to hold you for a while. I'm just going to I'm just going to be at peace next to you and, until you're ready to to talk to me about it. You know, and I think that communication mm. is a massive issue. And I think, you know, we we tend to take responsibility for everything that's happening in a room. You know, it's all our fault and you know, I, I haven't got children with a diagnosis of of autism. I've got children who, to me, are highly traited in various aspects of autism. But we can sort of say that that most of us have some traits. When I pre- presented my research, my findings at conferences, often people with autism or Asperger's will come up to me after and say, you must be undiagnosed. You must have autism. You must have Asperger's. And then I'm going, I- I'm really sorry. Yeah, I- I'm always apologetic. I'm really sorry, but I don't think I have. And then they go, are you in denial? We were there one day. We we were in denial one day. And it's, you know, it's really interesting that people who are neurodiverse find it really difficult to to actually grasp that a neurotypical could get them, Mm. could understand them. And I think that this is sort of the thing when you're talking about, you know, you with your son out, out in out in sort of the public or in your wider family, I think maybe some of your fear, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, could have been they just don't understand me, you know, and I need to, I need to put it because they don't understand him and they'll judge him. And 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 I don't want them judging him because he's my little boy and he's the most amazing person in the world. He's just not like other people. Yeah. And I have to say on a personal note, Rena, <laughs> I often say in my head, just the general population, I'm just not like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my coping strategies, I'm just not like you. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and I think that there is there's, there's a lot of judgment because we're all meant to be the same, aren't we? Yeah. We're all meant to be the same. And we're and we're not. Yeah. We're really not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think for me, a part of that was also I just wanted validation. Yeah. from others that I was a good parent yeah. because I didn't feel that self-validation not that it was coming my way anyway was was enough that I was enough to validate myself and I see that in so many parents of autistic children yeah. that they feel so shamed by others they allow themselves to be so shamed by others 
and and it's not a criticism because you know I, I've been there and it's taken me a long time to get to that place where I can say this is my child he's perfect exactly the way he mm -hmm. is and I am react choosing right now to react in the way that I feel is best I'm not mm -hmm. adapting my reaction to, to what you think yeah. or is, think is appropriate but that can be quite uncomfortable mm -hmm. for a lot of people because that you know if they think it's lazy parenting but yeah. but I know what I'm doing and I, I think there is this when you are in a place where you don't have that self-care mm -hmm. that you you just are seeking outward validation yeah. Yeah, that you're okay you're doing yeah. okay as a parent yeah because because there's such a there's like such a dissonance inside you mm -hmm. isn't there it's just like I love my child they're, they're amazing but they're not like that other child over there <laughs> you know yeah, and, yeah. and and it, it, it is it, it's and I think we're, we're such, we have to say, we, we have to say as a society, we're failing. We're failing so many people, you know, not just people with autism, but anybody who doesn't fit into the norm, who doesn't, who dares to challenge societal conditioning or normality. And, you know, who dares to put the head above the parapet to say, you know, hey, you know, we need to consider this or we need to, to do that. And I think that it's, it's not getting better mm. I think the problem you know the polarization is is, is getting worse and I, I something that I don't feel is really helpful is you know when people's conditions are medical overly medicalized you know and like it's the only the only thing that matters is the medical model mm. and and just going back to your um sort of, you, you know your, your comments on, on parenting and it's really difficult because when I was on social media I don't do that but that's another story <laughs> you know we could talk about that another time you know my hatred of all things social but when you when you look at groups of uh, you know, parents who just want to have support mm. from other parents with autism and the memes that are used. And there's this like general assumption that to be a parent of an autistic child, you have to be a warrior mm. and that you've been chosen by God because you're so special because you can cope with a child with autism. And I understand that that's, you know, like you say, that validation, but that's not helpful for that child. Yeah, It's <laughs> not helpful. And I just need to, to, I wanted to sort of say this, is that my research predominantly was in adults who had, you know, were diagnosed with, with autism, but those adults were once children and your children are going to be adults. And this is, this is the thing is, you know, they don't grow out of autism. <laughs> You know, it's just, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I say with, with teenagers, oh, they'll grow out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, you, you don't grow out of autism. It's just that people with autism have to have special support to learn how to navigate a world that is really hostile, even for neurotypicals. So imagine if you have um, a brain that actually is super duper globalized in some areas, but really specialized and localized in others, trying to make sense of a world that is so nasty and mean and judgmental and you know I, I am going to you know I was talking about a hostile environment with my PhD supervisor he said you need to be really careful about using that environment you know with the, the, the home office have kind of got it and I just said but I don't know how else to describe an environment that is really unforgiving mm -hmm. that actually is full of toxicity which people with autism tend to be more sensitive to mm -hmm. which have these rules that don't make sense to somebody who's neurotypical. So it's going to make no sense whatsoever at all to somebody who doesn't understand social rules. You know, and I think 
for those of us who can advocate and for those of us who are touched by this and who are like, passionate about this, I think we need to move away from the combative, I'm a warrior sort of pose and into a more, I have lived experience, so I know what I'm talking about. Mm. You know, this is our life and I'm not going to apologise for it. But equally, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with having zero compassion or Mm. zero kindness towards a child who is struggling with what's going on right now. You know, and I think we need to move more into that and, you know, move from that warrior where we're hiding in groups into, you know, this advocate role where we're actually saying we're all okay, and you need to know this, you know. Yeah, Yeah, completely. And I I can see how if you if you perpetuate this ideology of a warrior, all of a sudden the bar is lifted. Right. So you can tolerate more. You can everything is amplified. And. And actually, you're now trying to fit into a construct, yeah. which is really not serving you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Unless you know everybody Boudicca's, or any, you know, <laughs> I don't want to just like limit everybody to one type of warrior. You know? Other warriors are available. <laughs> you know? But, you know, this, this, is, this is it. And it's... Um, you, you're quite right in that it's a, it's a construct. It's a social construct, which has no sort of flexibility for the days when you are absolutely shattered yourself when your energy is low and you might not want to have to cope with a meltdown in the middle of a supermarket and the judgmental views and you might actually have a meltdown of your own uh you know ken and susan across the way who were there stood there with the trolleys what a bad mother what a naughty child and and, you know and this is what we have to, to deal with you know and it's just like we all should be that little bit more kind and that little bit more compassionate and actually understand that it's not it's not a, a, a general thing you see a child having a meltdown. That's not how children generally are. If, if it's happening, it's happening for a reason. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes I'm having a meltdown in my head when I go shopping myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just that I have, you know, the emotional regulation to know that it's all right in my head. I just can't do it out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm fortunate like that. I think I, I completely agree. I mean, the impact of kindness is just phenomenal. And I, I remember like one time I was in the supermarket and there was a child. I think there's something also about being an autism parent that makes you so much more compassionate Mm -hmm. towards other children and it's it's, you know whereas you know i think in in so many ways i am am a better human for being evie's mum because i i've been able to identify the masks i was i was wearing and shed those and and just live in authenticity and i remember a child coming up to coming in the supermarket and diving into my basket and pulling out my grapes um (laughs) and the father was just mortified and he just you could, and I could tell that there was something, I, this child was probably autistic. I could just, there was very, a lot of similarity between him and Evie. And the father, you could tell was beside himself. He looked really stressed. And, and, and I just gave him my grapes and I was like, and I said, and I didn't need to say, oh, I'm a parent of an autistic child. It was just, it's fine. Yeah. It's okay. If I'm going to go over there. knowing look in your face, don't you? It's just like, yeah, yeah I've been there. <laughs> Have my grapes. It's really fine. I will go back around, get some more. Yeah. It, um, it's just like, the, but there's something about a soft fruit. You can never rescue it, can you? <laughs> Once it's been grabbed at, it's like, yeah, have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I honestly, I promise I saw what I was thinking, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. No, no, no. I went down to yeah, that. Yeah. 
see, that's the difference. Listeners, that's the difference between me and myself. <laughs> <laughs> Something that you've talked about in the past, that's, you know, you're obviously hugely passionate about mental well-being, but I, I'm really keen to hear from you about the correlation and, and, and if there is one, I guess, between autistic individuals and their mental well-being and, yeah. and, and what we know about that. Well, interestingly, um, and quite timely, although I didn't quite realise it, this morning I was writing up some research and I was looking um, for some data to sort of back up my research. And, and I found something that was really, really interesting and not nice, actually, in that somebody was looking at a meta-analysis of um, suicide rates mm. in 2016 to 2020. And the prevalence rate of people with autism who were committing suicide, it was 10.8% of the suicides, which is so much higher than the prevalence of people with autism against the general population. Mm. And, and I thought, you know, judging some sort of well-being really bugs me because people sensing their well-being, you know, it's been hijacked by the yummy mummy brigade to a certain extent. Where it's like, oh, get some smelly candles, go to yoga, you know, um, whatever, oh, get some bath salts, all of it. And I'm not saying that they're not nice. So, I, you know, disclaimer, I, you know, I do not disagree with all of that. But when I talk about well-being, I'm talking about keeping the body into, in homeostasis. <laughs> I'm talking about keeping balance, enabling the best environments so somebody can be exactly who they want to be. Mm. Now, for me those sets of research you know which is which is recent that that's that's too recent for me Mm -hmm. um where we're we're showing that kind of you know like over 10 percent of suicides in the uk were from people who had a diagnosis of autism Mm. and that shows to me that well-being is not is still not on the agenda and what is really interesting to me is that I um, I contacted many people in the NHS. I, I went to a couple of away days when they were looking at strategies with autism and nobody was interested in my findings from my theory. Mm. Nobody was interested at all. And that was, you know, it, it, it makes it so... It highlights for me, it highlights that people with autism and the services that they connect with, they're not being served in terms of their well-being. And, you know, something that's, that's, that's also really interesting, when you look at the various tools, and I say tools and measures and interventions that are available for people with autism, a lot of them are centred around, um, and, and for me, it's really telling, centered around how to teach autistic children on how to manage negative emotion. And what's really interesting for me about this is that in my research, people with autism were as averse to feeling joy because they couldn't stand the after effects of joy Mm. as they were to feel, you know, they were quite happy with feeling anxiety. They were quite happy with you know, feeling um, frustration, you know, that was the norm, that was familiar. Yeah. But if we are talking about well-being, it's universally known. There's so much research out there for neurotypicals that what underpins a feeling of well-being is the ability to feel positive effect, a positive emotion. 
and we've got nothing in, out there that the you know any of the services use to to sort of facilitate how people with autism can manage positive effects so that they don't get you know the, the doom and gloom because when I felt really good I can't stand to to feel the the lows after it so they avoid it mm. you know and and it makes me wonder you know whether people have developed interventions developed these tools because we are so uncomfortable with seeing people exhibit a negative emotion mm -hmm. and we're all right with people who are just apathetic and uh, and you know feel nothing you <laughs> know the neutrality of it and so we need to teach people to be sort of automatons yeah you know? and for the you know for the whole of well-being how can somebody be well if they cannot experience, you know, joy at the sort of the ultimate point, but like sort of a, a eudaimonic and internal happiness at a sort of midpoint. Mm. So that's why sort of well-being is, is so important to me. The things that came out in, in my theory was that what was important to people with autism and their well-being yeah. was to have meaning in life. And people, oh, that's, you know, that's pretty trite. You know, me, what, what does that mean? They had to know what their role was. They had to know that they were valued. They had to know that there was an importance to their being on, you know, the earth. And, and it was described in often poetic language in, in that, it, you know, if, if I don't have meaning, you know, I'm taking so much energy up trying to find a meaning that I cannot wait until I'm no longer on this mortal coil. Mm. you know it was so it was it was so beautiful and you know forgive me again I often get emotional when I'm talking about about this because these are people yeah. you know the, the this is not a measure this is not a questionnaire this is this is not you know it's statistically significant for an autistic person to feel this or do that these are people's stories these are people who were so anxious to be part of my study Mm. that they had about four or five practice runs to get to the you know where we we're having the interview so they know they were going to be on time they knew that they were going to arrive there and and this is why I, I get so em emotionally moved by it because this was the first time they've been asked and how simple would it be to sort of reiterate to all the people that we know with autism that just being you is special just being you adds value yeah. Just having your unique take on life gives gives me a perspective that I've never thought of before. Yeah. And, and, and we just don't don't do it. And the second part of my um theory was acceptance. Mm. And, and not just acceptance by others. I think we need to really underpin it and really teach people with autism that they can accept themselves, you know. Yeah. In my theory, what was really what was really interesting for me is that um, what's sort of the golden thread that pulled it all together was a social comparison theory. Now, most people who talk about people with autism, you know, if, if I said to Joe Public or Josephine Public, <laughs> you know, I, I want to include everybody here, other days, you know, whoever they are, um, you know, describe someone with autism to me. They would say, oh, probably, you know, they'll have either Sheldon Cooper or Rain Man, or they might say somebody yeah. who, who doesn't really um, acknowledge other people in society, you know, just does their own thing, doesn't really feel emotion, doesn't know how I'm feeling. And I, all of that is wrong. Yeah. You have people with autism, they feel 
the emotions of others so acutely, even before they enter into a room. And then they're comparing themselves, social comparison, they're comparing themselves against everybody else. You know, and people don't get that. It's like, you know, so when we talk about acceptance, I think, you know, we need to move the conversation on about autism, you know, all this autism awareness, you know, it's a disservice now for me. Yeah. (laughs) What we need to do is like, right, we've done all that. You know, if you've not got it after 25 years of people doing it, then, you know, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) You (laughs) So now I need to move the conversation on in that autism acceptance. What does that look like? Well, neurotypicals know that for whatever you're doing on a daily basis, someone with autism is going to use 10 to 15 percent more energy just doing what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. they're going to be tired at some point. Expect a meltdown. (laughs) Expect them to be abrupt. Expect them, you know, not to have social niceties because they're just too tired. Let's just accept it. You know, you know, and let's just accept that they are who they are. And that doesn't make any judgment on us. Mm. You know, parents, just because your child is away, it's not a judgment on you. So if we all were kinder to parents like yourself, you know, you wouldn't feel judged when you go anywhere. You, you just like feel supported, yeah. you know, and I like to think of, you know, if we lived in tribes like we're meant to, you know, when you're tired, Rina, because your son is literally on the ceiling because he's so overstimulated, there'd be somebody to take over from you. Yeah. Yeah. Because there'd be someone to say, I, I see your tiredness, Rena. And I'm just going to come in for a few hours so you can go and have a rest. But we don't live like that. So that's what acceptance is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so this is well-being for people with autism. Yeah. And, and I'm going to put a challenge out. Let's, let's start this conversation with your listeners, Rena. The services that you're involved with, do they ever talk about what role and meaning your child has or how accepted your child feels? Because if they don't, let's start that revolution. Because I've struggled to get this into NHS, yeah. you know. And, and, and my findings, they weren't from me. They were from people with autism. Yeah. I was just a storyteller. I was just a person hearing it. It was from people with autism. So yeah. for me, when, when that's not listened to, you're still not being listened to. And I won't stop until you listen to. I can promise you that. I love it. <laughs> Please don't stop. Um, <laughs> But yeah, oh gosh, there's so much there. I wanted to, I was like mentally bookmarking to, to pick up on. <laughs> where does it start? Where, where do we start though? So if we're saying, okay, we want to get to a place where autistic individuals feel psychologically safe in society to, to they accept themselves for the amazingness that each, of, each unique being has within them. Where do, does it start in schools? Does it start from home? Where does it start? I think it has to start with neurotypicals. Right. I think it needs to start with neurotypical saying enough now. So like let's not cordon off <laughs> that corner and that child can go and you know, and that you know, that's from a very early setting. So that you know, like you when you were saying you felt judged by your wider family and things like that, you know, it has to start that why why are we judging people? Why are we not accepting that sometimes it's a tough gig being a parent? Well, when I say sometimes, I should, you know, introduce that with most times, you know, so it has to start with neurotypicals because we are the ones who set the rules. <laughs> you know, we are the ones who say this, this is what normal looks like. And I, I hate normal. Mm. You know, I like, it's like, I'm just not like you, norms. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I want to be normal. But for somebody with autism, they're desperate 
to be normal. They're desperate not to have difference. And why is that? Because we make it so hard for them. So it has to start with neurotypicals. And then where does it go? Right. Parents of people with autism, when you're interjecting with these services, you need to start saying this is not good enough. Yeah. This is not good enough, particularly for those of you who are paying for services. Hmm. Stop being grateful for the crumbs off the table because change is not going to happen until we start saying this is not good enough. This is not acceptable. You know, this is not what I foresee as being supportive to me or my family. You know, and I think because um, the going back to the warrior parent again, because there's this acceptance that you have to battle everything, that everything's hard work, that everything, you know, that you get is achieved by maximum energy. Sort of, it, it, it enables those services to give service, provide services that are not quite good enough. You know, so. And it's like, you know, I don't want to, to criticize services who are probably, you know, overextended, but they need, it's like, you need to stop. There needs to be a redesign and the autistic voice has to be at the center of that. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's still not, you know, yeah. you can look, if you did a, did a search, you know, Google Scholar, there are other, <laughs> other <laughs> search engines available, but I'm just presuming that not many of your listeners could access like, you know, university um, journal, that kind of thing. So I put a caveat there so we don't get you in trouble. Other search engines are available (laughs) to look at research. You will see in every bit of autism research, in the limitations, it will say Mm. that more needs to be done to listen to the autistic voice. All of them. I'll say it. You know, even I who listen to the autistic voice, (laughs) more must be done to listen to the autistic voice. There's so much out there, you know, I co-authored a paper looking at how to research with people with autism. You know, this, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to listen. We need to do service design around what that person with autism needs. And I still don't see that being done. You know, I look at look in schools and I, I can say this with with authority because I had an I had an issue with education. So I did a PGCE. And I could only afford to teach part time <laughs> because if I teach as British, I had to do my other stuff part time as well. Because I, I thought I cannot criticize education unless I'm willing to get in there and have and have a look. And I saw, I saw so many, so many. I don't know whether people are scared of people with children with autism, whether children with autism are so damaged by education that they literally retreat into themselves and and they're giving very primal sort of emotion-based responses you know there's something not quite right you know and we should be supporting those children more we should be nurturing them we should be helping them to believe that they're good by you know looking at education systems you know and particularly what's happened in the pandemic we sort of give a message loud and clear to children is that you don't matter (laughs) none of you so if we've done that to all the children god help children with special needs you know, God help people, you know, who are literally struggling within neurodiversity, mm. you know, issues. Yeah. So it's like, but until we say this is not good enough. And also, unless we're unless we're brave enough and have courage to try something, and this is something else that I, I think is really important, is that we have such fear of getting things wrong. Yeah. 
that we don't ever want to try to see if we can get it right. So if something's half okay, so like say like 33% of your population are okay with this, <laughs> you know, they're not, but we don't want to deal with them, but we know it's so we're scared of, of, of being able to hold our hand up and say, you know what, we got it wrong, but we've learned from it and we can go. But unless we did this, yeah. we wouldn't know what to do. And I think if service providers, particularly, you know, speaking with parents say, this is like a holistic approach. We need you, you need us. We're going to figure this out and, you know, we're going to work together and, and some things might work, some things might not, but we can evolve yeah you're going to be we're not going to be in this place forever yeah how would you feel as a parent if that was a conversation had with you yeah yeah i think you know the parents i speak to literally feel like they need to armor up um in order to have any kind of meaningful conversation with any with services and i think all of it it does also come back to investment and resource and there just isn't enough there but i feel like you know the people who have the most contact with our children are often the teaching assistants and learning assistants. And they're not even on the radar for being given autism training or any other type of really meaningful special needs training. Mm. It's like they're not even, you know, until they're teachers, Mm. but, but yet these are the children, these are the people who are spending Mm. hour after hour. They're the ones on the EHCP plan fulfilling that time with your child. And so for me, I've, I've really taken it upon myself to get right in there and have those conversations. But there's a lot of parents who aren't in that space yet where they they can do that. And because they're not doing, because they're not able to do that yet, the child's not getting the support they mm. need. Uh, well, I'm just going to, I'm just, because this is really interesting to me is that, you know, you mentioned sort of specialist training and, and, you know, neurodiverse sort of focus training, but you know it's like do people need training to be kind yeah do people need training just to notice that when a child is in distress a child is in distress they're not being naughty they're distressed have we really disconnected so much from human beings that we cannot see a child in pain that we cannot see a child who's confused that we have to instill our power and control model, which is inherent through society on the most vulnerable of people. And so I, I understand that some people might need, you know, specialist training to, you know, particularly in terms of knowing if there's, there's different um, learning techniques. But in, I think what you're talking about is when and a teaching assistant does not know how to handle with a child who has had too much exposure to too much during the day and can't handle that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or you know the child who's got overexcited because there's so much going on and it's just like sit in your chair sit you know it's like you know what what child generally can sit down when they've had oh and this is this is what I, I think this you know it's like we give excuses you know, when you talk about investment and we talk about over, you know, the resources are scarce, blah, blah, blah. Well, I can't, I I don't know, maybe somebody can correct me, but I don't see kindness as a commodity that has to be purchased. You know, I have no one to give you that memo that that's where we are now in 21st century. You want to be kind, that's going to cost you, (laughs) you know. And I think this is really important. It's like, Parents, when you when you're having that, you you you're initially going through the forays of having a diagnosis of it, which 
let's just that in itself comes with a plethora of judgment of shame you know what did I do wrong for six months my god what happened in my pregnancy what did I do all of these things you know it comes with that you know go go armed with you know the thing what do you want for your I just want you to be kind I just want you to be understanding all I want you to do is like tell my child he or she is okay as they are don't make them feel shame don't make them feel different just let's just accept you know because the children in the class will you know my children have been in in classes with um special needs children from nursery in fact and it was just like (laughs) like oh it was just that child that's just what that child's like and it's acceptance at that level and it's only when adults teach children that difference is wrong that as they get older that they do start that sort of judgmental you know bullying sort of standoffish behavior but at primary school and at nursery they're very accepting of difference exceedingly accepting and we we should capitalize on that totally totally yeah you mentioned about being kind. Now, I know you're on a movement about <laughs> on kindness and kindness, like on a whole other level, the kind of, you know, not your kind of, I don't know, meme or Instagrammable yeah. t-shirt type thing, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind. This is, this is being kind on like a whole other level. So yeah, 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 before we kind of wrap things up, talk to us a bit about your movement. Yeah, well, I want people to start being kind and do everything in kindness in terms of we're not indulging ourselves here. So generally when we say, oh, be kind, it's like, oh, <laughs> and indulging ourselves, oh, I'm going to have a bar of chocolate or anything like that. But yeah. for me, when you're kind, it's about that you have a, a medium and long-term goal in mind that, you know, what can I do now to soothe and nurture myself so that I can be who and what I want to be in the future? And I think kindness should start with the self. So how can I be kind to me and then move on to other people? Because if you are in a position where you are feeling so isolated, so alone, like nobody understands you, and then you think, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to do act and rise of kindness to other people. And then you don't get any back. Mm. You're literally going to start being, you know, feeling what's wrong with me. It's going to perpetuate that I'm, I'm not okay. Yeah. But if you turn that kindness to yourself, and start thinking how can I be more kind to me how can I stop punishing myself how can I stop sabotaging everything I'm doing mm-hmm. you know and, and move into that that space um then things are going to improve and I, I just remember once you know do you remember I can't remember what version of the lockdown it was but I remember it was a January and I remember um I think my partner was still stuck in New Zealand which is a whole new other story mm-hmm. and um and I just remember I used to at night, it's just like, I'm so tired. I'm, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to, I'm going to have some dark chocolate because that's good for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not when you're having <laughs> green and black every night and going to bed at half five. That's not good for you. Got to day seven of this and I thought, oh my God, I'm indulging myself. You know, that this is not going to end well. And that's the difference. It's like the first night could be, oh, this is a treat. I'm going to go to bed really early. I'm going to take a good book and some dark chocolate, you know, and convince me, you know, it's dark chocolate, so it's good for you. <laughs> it's not your cafe, so it's good for you. But it's not, you know, that was not going to end well. However, me sort of thinking, right, I've finished work, I'm going to take the children, we'll just, even if it's just around the block, and we do that every day, that's going to lift our spirits in a week, a month. And, and that's what being kind really is, not, not the indulgence. So, yeah, I hate... Instagram be kind hashtag be kind I, I, I hate it and I'm on a mission for people to understand the difference because that's not kindness that's mm-hmm. like 
virtue signaling, which isn't kindness whatsoever, because like, how kind are you to yourself? Because I, I can't see it. I can just see quite a lot of pain in you. And how mm. kind are you to other people? So, yeah, th that's what I'm on, on a mission to do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so to those parents who were, you know, I remember that's when I was in that kind of self-sacrifice kind of mode. And to me, the, the thought of being kind to myself, just I just equated that with indulgence. Yeah. Are there any really practical mm -hmm. tips you can offer on how we can, A, get out of that mindset and B, mm -hmm. actually be kind to ourselves? Well, I think you have to be get, you know, your big boy or big girl pants and pull them right up and recognize that anything that you are, sacrificing or not doing for yourself it's like you're punishing yourself and in terms of this it's probably punishing yourself for having a child with autism and then feeling guilty because aren't they amazing <laughs> you know so it's like this you know you put it and it's like I feel bad for punishing myself so it's just like literally to recognize that when you are within a, a situation which is not the the general societal norm you are initially going to have to understand that you're gonna have to accept and acceptance can take a long time hmm. You know, but it, it's like, you know, it's like acceptance of anything. You know, it's it's a pro, you know, I was like, it's a process. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just going through a process. We're all going through a process, you know, just the whole of life is a process, you know, that's what it throws at you. But it's like having to um, you know, a, a really big tip would be is like just accept that you've got to accept. That's the first thing. Just accept that. That, you know, all right, nobody asked for this, but I've been given it, you know, <laughs> just yeah. accept that. Yeah. And then the, the second thing is like, when you are being kind to yourself, you are not doing things that are going to weaken your systems. It's like, right, I need more energy. So I need to get good sleep at night. I need to get outside and have 10 minutes of sunlight before I do anything else. In winter, it can be a bit tricky. Just get outside as soon as the sun's up. 10 minutes. Anybody can have 10 minutes. Yeah. In that 10 minutes, you might want to get your heart rate going, you know, to about 60, 65%. Do some squats. If you're hardcore, do some burpees. Just give yourself that 10 minutes at the start of the day. And that literally will set you up, set your hormones up for a really good day so you're going to sleep well at night. Yeah. If you're exhausted, your poor adrenals might be a bit amok. Make sure that you eat within 10 minutes of getting up, just a small amount, and that can really help with adrenal support. And then the, the last thing that I want to say, you know, and it, you know, this might be difficult, it's just like laughing is really good. When we laugh, we get a really good hormone that's generated that actually is anti-aging. So you might all want to say it's like laughter really is, the, you know, the, one of the best medicines. And, and just, you know, the, the, the final thing that I want to say is that you're not going to get it right ever <laughs> so you know never ever are you going to get it right for anybody so as long as you are all right everybody else around you is going to be all right you know and and as long as you're feeling buoyant and you know I want to say optimistic because I, I hate hope <laughs> hope for me <laughs> it's like yeah we want to be optimistic, but we don't want to be have, wanting so, like a, a knight in shining armor to come and rescue, yeah. which is what I think hope tends to, you know, it's like, and suddenly I was rescued. No, <laughs> I mean, we don't, you know, because that never happens, does it? You know, you have this like optimism that I've looked after me, yeah. so I've got enough to look after you. Yeah. And, and that, that really is, is my top tip.
<laughs> you know, in a I very roundabout way. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just, that's the most beautiful note to end on. I've looked after me so I can look after you. And I, yeah, I think that just really, that is actually very, very powerful. You have been phenomenal. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing your incredible wisdom and uh, giving us your time today. And um, yeah, I feel like this is like the tip of the iceberg and we could probably have a lot more conversations. So um, who knows, maybe there'll be a part two in the future. <laughs> well, I'm always happy to talk to anybody about, because I you know, I hope that's come across that this is, I'm very passionate about autism. They have a special place in my heart, very yeah. special place. Yeah. And, and it makes me laugh. And, you know, this is my nice thing is that guaranteed my children can always seek out the special, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, it makes it makes me laugh. Whenever we go anywhere, they're playing on the park, we will get the child who is different to the other children. They're just like drawn to us. And I just think that's just such a wonderful thing yeah. that, that, you know, and it just reminds me that this is really needed. This acceptance is just really needed. Yes. So, yeah. But thank you so much for having me on. I have enjoyed talking about my passion. Thank you. Thank you so much. And look at the website. You'll see all the resources where you can find out more about Dr. Rachel. Sign up for her incredible mail shots, which always have beautiful poetry, affirmations, and yeah, just chock full of inspiring content. So I will all that all of that is on the website. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. <laughs> You've been listening to Unpacking Autism with Rena Arnand. Podcast artwork by Creative Stripes. Editing by Adam Jones Lloyd and music by autistic musician Paul McGowan.